pastor decided to randomly visit his church, uh, members one Sunday afternoon, unannounced. Upon arriving in a particular house, it was clear to him that people were home, there was movement in the house, the lights were on, there were cars in the driveway, but no one ever came to the door despite him knocking over and over. And finally, after several times, he thought, I'll just leave a card. And so he left a card and uh, wrote on the back and stuck in the door. And on the back, he just wrote Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Next day, the same card, Sunday, shows up in the offering plate. And there's a note on the backside of that card. And it simply read Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. (laughs) well not only is that the punchline of that joke that is the focal text we're going to work through this morning so let me invite you to take your bibles and turn to genesis chapter 3 as we conclude our hope series with a message titled hope for a shame-filled heart let me apologize for my voice i uh, this morning woke up my ears were clogged up and so when you're preaching you sounds like you're echoing you can't hear yourself so this morning at mason i couldn't really hear myself wasn't sure if i was projecting so i just preached a little harder and uh, kind of wore my voice out, and then I got down at the end, and I walked back to the booth to get my microphone and uh, leave to get over here, and he said, hey, just FYI, you never took your mic off of mute. And I said, oh, sorry about that. So just wore my voice out a little bit, so I apologize for my voice. I would argue in Genesis chapter 3 that it's the first recorded instance of shame in human history. Looking at a concise definition of shame from a biblical perspective, I came across the following. Shame is an emotion that combines unworthiness, rejection, humiliation, and disgrace. Shame has to do with your standing before God and your standing in the community. And that's exactly where we find Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, feeling unworthy in their standing before God to the point where they try to hide from him here in Genesis 3. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the the, uh, trees of the garden, the fruit of the trees. But God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that it's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Our goal throughout this series is to equip you biblically 
uh, for some of life's most common challenges that we all, me included, experience and wrestle with. And we also uh, want to teach you throughout the series as a secondary uh, item is that simply this, is that the wisdom for the life that we actually live is not found outside the scriptures, but rather it's found in the word of God. It's totally sufficient. Every book in the Bible points to Jesus and he is an all-sufficient Savior. In an effort to equip you, uh, we've tried to teach as clear and as plain and as practical as we can throughout this whole series, and so we don't want to deviate uh, from that pattern today. So here's how I want to organize our time in the Word. Uh, I want us to talk about what shame is biblically. I want us to talk about how it behaves, and then I want to talk about, uh, lastly, how to break free from it, all right? So if that sounds like a good idea, a way to teach it, would you just say amen? amen. Good. That's what I was going to do anyway, okay? So... Let's wrestle through, let's just hit this head on. First question is, uh, what is shame? And often throughout this series, we've uh, taken some topics that on the surface seem to be the same or synonyms or interchangeable. We've kind of dug beneath the surface and realized that in fact, they're not the same thing. We learned that anger and bitterness are not the same thing. We talked about grace and mercy uh, not being the same thing. But the reality is, is that often when we talk about shame, we also talk about guilt. As a matter of fact, uh, we use those almost as if they're synonyms, they're interchangeable, that someone's wrestling through or battling uh, guilt and shame in their lives as if they were the exact same thing. But when you dig into it, they're in fact are not the same thing. Uh, let me help draw some distinctions uh, between the two. Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted, gives us a very concise definition of shame, but then he also gives an excellent illustration distinguishing the difference between guilt and shame. And so here's the definition he gives in Shame Interrupted. He said, shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. That, that's a fantastic definition of what shame is, how it feels uh, in a person's life. But then he goes on that and provides an illustration that shows the difference between guilt and shame. And it's a little lengthy, but it's so good, so stay with me. He says, shame and guilt are close companions, but not identical. Shame is the more common and broader of the two. In scripture, you find shame referenced uh, about 10 times more than guilt uh, in the Bible. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge, it says, you're responsible for your wrongdoing, you're legally answerable, uh, you're wrong, you have sinned. The guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. He says, but shame lives in the community. Though the community can feel like a courtroom, shame says, you don't belong, you're unacceptable, you're unclean, you're disgraced because you're wrong, you've sinned. And wrong or wrong has been done to you, you're associated with those who are disgraced or outcast. The shame-filled person expects rejection, and what they need is love. And so let me offer what I hope will be a clarifying thought or principle as it relates to uh, guilt and shame and how they're similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. And it simply is this, is that guilt has to do with past regret. Shame has to do with present identity. Let me repeat that. Guilt has to do with past regret. Shame has to do with present uh, identity. Guilt often says, I feel terrible for what I've done. But shame says, I am disgusted at who I have, in fact, become. With guilt, it's often black and white. I know what I did. I knew it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I know exactly what, what I feel guilty about. But with shame, it sometimes is just kind of beneath the surface. We can 
kind of feel uh, like we did wrong, but we can't always put our finger on what it is that makes us feel that way. That's how shame uh, operates. And so guilt and shame are often intertwined, but in fact, they are not the same thing. And shame's source is limitless. Again, in guilt, I have an idea, this is what I feel guilty about. I'm experiencing guilt over this decision or this action, but shame uh, is varied in its source. Let me just draw attention to some potential causes or sources of shame. Uh, The first one uh, is pride. Now, on the surface, that would sound like the opposite of shame, right? Shame says, I'm less than, but pride says, uh, I'm more than everyone Else, But the reality is, even though this is uh, subtle and I don't think it's the most common source of shame, uh, actually pride can be a catalyst for shame. Here's why. Because shame says in the courtroom of the community, I feel less than. And a heart that's riddled with pride could be because I have such a desire to look good in front of other people that when I perceive I don't look good, it actually throws me into shame. And so the root of that can be actually Pride, even though I don't believe that's the most common source, so it could be pride, it's the root of shame. Second source uh, is abuse. And this could be verbal, sexual, emotional, physical, uh, a mixture of all of the above. And, and those who experience abuse uh, often believe the lie that something is wrong with me or for someone else to feel that I deserve that kind of treatment or in some way, shape, or form. I must have gave them the signal that this was okay, this was welcome, this was wanted, and so therefore I co-signed uh, for what took place. Now, because this is so hard to break free from when, when the root of shame is, is, is abuse, uh, let me offer up some following uh, counsel, right? So if you're listening, say amen. There is a difference between being victimized and being a victim. Victim is an identity label. Victimized is an act of injustice that you have experienced. And that is not semantics. Let me tell you why. Because your identity is not in the sin that someone else caused or harmed you with. Your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. And what's true about you is not what they did to you. What's true about you is what Christ has declared about you. So you may have been victimized, but you are not a victim. You're a more than conqueror in Jesus Christ. And your value is what who you are and the inherent dignity you have as an image bearer of God. You, in fact, are not the sin someone else committed against you. You're an image bearer of God. And so if you don't realize that, then what happens is the person who's abused you, they not only abused you, they stole your identity, identity theft. And so the reality is what we say is, hey, I'm who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm not the sin someone else committed against me. And so abuse can be a source of shame, pride can be a subtle source of shame, Uh, neglect can be a source of shame. I'd make the distinction that abuse is active harm, but neglect is a love withheld. I've met people over the years in counseling and wrestling through battles with shame, and, and they would give this testimony. My parents never raised their voice. They never laid a hand on me. I was never afraid of them. They were never violent, so there was no abuse, physical, verbal, emotional in my house. However, they also would say, but uh, on the contrary, uh, I also never heard, I love you or I'm proud of you. And so abuse is action, harmful, directed towards you. Neglect is love withheld. And what happens is shame is an accumulation of lies that eventually we believe. And so the lie that shame tells us in neglect is the reason that I never heard I love you is because in fact, I must be unworthy of love. 
These are the lepers in the Bible who were avoided by everyone. These are the tax collectors who were avoided by the Romans because they're Jewish and avoided by the Jews because they're working for the Romans. So neglect can be a source of shame as well, but then also, lastly, I would tell you this, uh, repeated patterns of sin. This happens when we get involved in repeated patterns of sin and uh, we get trapped in that sin and we confess that sin and and promise to God or to other people that I'll never do that again, that's not who I am, And, and in fact, we end up committing that very same sin and through the shame of that, we get trapped in that pattern of repeated sin where eventually it becomes not just something we're wrestling with or waging war against, but in fact, it becomes our identity. This is the woman at the well in John chapter four. After a repeated, long-standing pattern of sexual sin in her life, she's no longer a woman who is guilty of sexual sin. Uh, When you read John chapter four, she's identified as the sinful woman. Not a woman who's committed sin, but her identity is now a sinful woman. Which leads us right into the next question we wanna answer, which is simply this, how does shame behave? You know what shame is like? Shame is like one of those funhouse mirrors in a carnival. Who's ever stood in front of a funhouse mirror in a carnival, right? Sometimes you go in there and you get in there and you're like, I'm 10 feet tall. They make you look taller. Sometimes you get in there and it makes you look really smaller. Right? Every now and then, uh, if God's favor's on you, makes you look thinner, right? I just stand there and take a selfie on that one. Look at me. But the problem with those mirrors is it's not a true reflection back of what you actually look like. And so that's what shame is. Shame's an issue of identity and it distorts your identity. Because there's a distorted identity and shame, we have to recognize uh, some of the patterns or things that indicate shame, in fact, has taken roots uh, in our hearts. And so let me highlight three right from Genesis chapter three of how shame behaves when it takes root in our lives. The first one is this, is that shame tells you, you are your sin. I wanna look at Genesis chapter three, verse seven, But before we look at verse seven, I want you to flip back one chapter into chapter two, verse 25. And this is a fascinating progression that takes place in just a few short verses. Genesis chapter two, verse 25 says this, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There they are in their birthday suits, naked, but totally unashamed. But yet fast forward just a few verses to Genesis chapter three, verse seven. Then it says, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now from Genesis chapter one and verse two, from the assignments that God gave them to have dominion over there, to take care of the garden, all those things, we know that when he's talking about the eyes of them were open, we know from Genesis one and two, the work that God gave them, that they were not battling physical blindness. And then in chapter three, verse seven, they, they all of a sudden regained their physical sight. No, they could see just fine. So what verse seven is saying in chapter three is all of a sudden they saw themselves in a new light and it was not a favorable light. So before, they they could see each other physically. Bible says in uh, chapter two, verse 25, they were naked and and unashamed. And then here, just a few verses later, uh, their eyes are open, they see themselves in a new way, they deem that way is unworthy and they feel exposed and unworthy and dirty and unclean. Now here's the question. What caused the change of identity 
to in chapter 2, verse 25, they're naked and unashamed, to chapter 3, verse 7, now they're naked and they feel dirty and exposed and they, in fact, are ashamed. Well, you don't have to wonder because the answer is where the answer always is. It's in the text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 starts off and it says, and then they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Uh, that's 22, I'm sorry, 25. It says, then the eyes of them were both open. So when you see the word then in the text, it, it's indicating a cause and effect relationship. And so verse 7 is the effect. Uh, their eyes were open. They felt dirty. They felt exposed. They felt ashamed, unworthy, unclean. So why is that? Well, go back to the cause. And the cause is in verse 6. That's when they committed the act of disobedience. And so what happened? When they sinned, they no longer said, hey, we've sinned. God's mercy is available. What they said is, hey, we've sinned. We now see ourselves in a different light. We're unworthy. We, in fact, we are our sin. That our sin has now become our identity. That's the lie that shame tells you. That's the lie of shame. If you're listening, say amen. amen. The lie that shame tells you is that the worst thing you've ever done is also the truest thing about you. And when you believe that lie that you are your sin, shame has taken root uh, in your hearts. And that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. How do I know that? Because uh, what happens next in the text, so one, shame says you're your sin. Uh, verse 25, chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. Chapter 7, verse 3, they were naked and ashamed. Why? Because they are sin. And then what happens is shame lies and says you have to fix it. Shame says, hey, there's... There's something wrong with you. Not that you've done something wrong. That's guilt. There, in fact, is something wrong with you inherently that you are your sin. And the gospel says, hey, there's nothing you can do to fix your sin. But shame says, you broke it. It's your fault. You co-signed for it. So, therefore, it's your responsibility to fix what's broke because there's something broken and wrong with you. And so shame's an accumulation of lies that, therefore, preaches the opposite of the gospel of grace. What shame preaches is religion. Now, let me tell you what religion is. Religion is man's attempt to work his way back to God. It's man's attempt to fix what is broken between him and God. And that's exactly what they pursued. They felt so unworthy of God's love. They felt so dirty and exposed and ashamed that they thought God's not going to love us if he sees us like this. We now see ourselves differently. We, in fact, didn't just sin. We are our sin. And so because there's something wrong with us, we have to fix it. And so what does verse 7 say? Uh, look at it. Verse 7 says, and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves fruit of the loom. That's what the word is in the Hebrew. Trust me. So what happened? Their sin became their identity. They felt ashamed. It went from unashamed to ashamed. Nothing changed, by the way, in their physical appearance. What changed is how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as their sin. And as a result of that, he said, hey, we broke it. Something's wrong with us. And so we've got to fix this, whatever it's broken between God and us. And so we have to fix it. Now, here's what's interesting. Where did they learn that? 
Prior to this, they had a perfect relationship with God. Where did they learn that, that somehow if they sinned against God, which they did, then, then God should be, uh, you should be afraid of God, that God won't offer grace? Uh, the Bible says they had perfect fellowship with God in the garden. But all of a sudden, uh, with no past track record of God unleashing his wrath in their lives, all of a sudden, they just said, hey, something's wrong with us. Uh, we have to fix it. So where did they learn that? Well, this is the third way that shame behaves. Shame tells you you should hide. There's something wrong with you. You're unworthy, you're dirty, you're exposed. You're not worthy of love, you're rejected. And so as a result of that, uh, you, should, you should hide. Look at verse eight and verse 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now skip down to verse 10. And he, being Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And again, there's no context. There's no history up in their relationship with God at this point that, that they would ever feel like they should respond in fear when they disappointed God. All they'd ever known was God's love, God's presence, God's fellowship. And so all of a sudden, uh, they go from this re intimate relationship with God to all of a sudden saying, hey, we've disappointed God. There's something wrong with us. We've got to fix it. And until we can fix what we broke, because there's something wrong with us, we should hide our faces. Why did they do that? Because that's exactly how shame operates. Shame says you're exposed and if people see you exposed because you're unclean, you're dirty, then, then you're, you're going to get even more rejection. And so therefore, you should hide. They didn't learn that from their interaction with God. They learned that because that's what shame does in our hearts. It says, hide your face. That's the safest thing to do. And that's what comes natural to humanity, right from Genesis chapter 3. And by the way, that's what we do as well. We hide behind a life of busyness because we don't want to be alone with our thoughts. We hide by putting our identity in our children's performance because we're ashamed of our own. You ever seen a person losing their marbles at a t-ball game? If you are that person, uh, listen, don't tell anybody you go to Liberty Heights, all right? You know what that's about? That's not like, oh, there were scouts here today and you blew it, right? You know what that's about? My kid looks bad and so is a turn. That makes me look bad. We hide behind achievement accolades, hoping that everyone else will be convinced that we're great. It will drown out the shames, constant feelings of being less than. Shame tells us we need to perform well in order to be loved well because we do not deserve to love after what we've done and as a result, who we have become. Listen, sometimes we hide when shame takes root. We hide online. We don't go out and have real relationships and real community because we're exposed there. We can't put out this curated picture of all the highlight reels. We don't, we have, uh, we've been wired for human connection by God himself and so we go online because that's what we need. God has wired us that way. But online, I can get some human connection with someone else on the other side of a screen but I, I'm not at the risk of being exposed. They don't see the real me. And so Shane tells us to hide and that's what's going on since the Garden of Eden. This is the woman 
The Gospels, who's so ashamed of her physical condition, the Bible says she'd been plagued for an issue of blood for 12 years. She's so ashamed of her physical condition and, and what she uh, represents that she just, instead of running out to Jesus saying, uh, you can heal me, she just reaches out in the crowd secretly and touches the hem of his garment because she's so ashamed to make her and her need known. This is the woman at the well. And that day they would go out and draw water in the morning, they would draw water in the evening. Why? Because it was hot. And yet when we encounter her in the scriptures, what we find is she's out there in the middle of the day. Why is she out there in the middle of the day when no one else would go out and draw water? Because she knew that she was a sinful woman by their declaration. And so as a result, she wants to go out there with the hopes that I don't have to encounter anyone. I don't want anyone to see me. This is King David out of fear of being exposed as an adulterer, hiding behind a cover-up that turned murder. Shame tells you you're dirty, and rather than people seeing you like that, you should hide your face. And let me list a couple check engine lights that may indicate shame has started to take root. It may not be these full-blown behaviors that we just walked through, but these are some warning lights on the dash that, that shame's taking root under the hood of your heart. Let me just rattle off three this morning. Uh, one could be lust for approval and affirmation. You know what shame's favorite two words are? Less than. And when shame takes root in our hearts and constantly tells us you're less than, less than, less than, our hearts will long, it'll become an idol, a lust for uh, the approval and, and acceptance from someone else who we hope will make us feel more than and drown out shame's constant lie of less than. That's a warning sign on the dash. Anger. Shame is painful. And when someone puts their finger into the open wound of hurt, we yell out in anger with the hopes that we can scare them into stopping. Lack of confidence. John Piper said this. He said, much of what makes us feel shame is not that we brought dishonor on God by our actions, listen to this, but that we have failed to give the appearance that other people admire and over time if we feel like our shame has told us you failed to give the appearance that other people would admire then guess what eventually just erodes our confidence instead of living out of the confidence of who we are in Jesus Christ and so that's how shame behaves so we talked about what it is it's not about past regret it's about or past regrets about present identity uh, we've talked about how it behaves uh, so let's get to the good part all right so how do we break free from shame let me give you a few things from Scripture. Number one, demolish strongholds. Now, if you have a habit of watching preachers on TBN, number one, stop it. All right? Just because it's on TV doesn't mean it's true. Just because on the Internet it's not true. Did you know that? So if you're getting your spiritual diet from those guys on TBN, let me just, number one, let me encourage you to stop it. Number two, if you watch those, then you'll hear some of our charismatic friends at times uh, talk about strongholds as a spirit. The spirit of fear or spirit of anger or spirit of lust or spirit of greed or spirit of whatever, fill in the blank. And, and here's the problem with that. That's not what the Bible teaches about strongholds. It's not a spirit that dwells outside of us and then comes and attacks us. Uh, matter of fact, the Bible says strongholds are in our thought life. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds that's verse four and then he tells you what strongholds are in verse five 
We destroy, it's what a stronghold is, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so what he's saying is, hey, a stronghold is a pattern of thinking that's unbiblical, but you believe that lie to the point you live out of it. And he said the way you demolish a stronghold is to believe the truth and grab a hold of it and put that truth over top of that lie that you've been living out of. The lie that shame tells us is you're less than, you're unworthy, you're dirty, you're deserving of rejection and humiliation. And so we take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we do the second thing, which is this, is we believe that what God says is in fact our true identity. If shame is a lie that I'm my sin or the co-signer that of the sin that someone else committed against me, then I have to expose that lie, take it captive to the obedience of Christ, and, and live out of what actually is true, not the lie that shame tells me. Now, last week, I just gave you a sampling uh, of verses on our identity in Christ. Listen, uh, this morning, I'm gonna let the dam open, all right? And uh, here, I don't know if you know this or not, sometimes when I get rolling, I can talk really fast, praise God, all right? Don't even try and write these down. Just listen to them. Email us. We'll give you the list later, right? So who are you in Jesus Christ? If shame is the lie that tells me you're your sin, and I want to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ and live out of that, then who, in fact, am I in Jesus Christ? I'm a friend of Jesus. John 15. We could just stop right there. Amen? I can't, all right? 1 Corinthians 6. I've been bought with a price. John 15, I'm a branch of the true vine, Jesus Christ. I'm free from condemnation, Romans 8.1. I'm God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3. I'm a minister of reconciliation for God, 2 Corinthians 5. I'm able to approach God with freedom and confidence, Ephesians 3. I'm united with the Lord, 1 Corinthians 6. I'm established, anointed, and sealed by God, 2 Corinthians 1. I'm born of God, 1 John 5. I'm untouchable by the evil one, 1 John 5. I'm a member of his body, 1 Corinthians 12. I'm a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3. I'm assured that God works for my good in all circumstances, Romans chapter eight. I'm chosen and appointed to bear fruit, John 15. I'm seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm, Ephesians 2. I'm alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4. I'm full of peace, Philippians 4. I'm God's workman. Ephesians 2. I'm hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3. I'm God's child, John 1. According to Romans 5, 1, I'm justified, which means I am guilty, but praise God, in Jesus Christ, I have been pardoned. That's who you are in Jesus Christ, despite the lie that shame says you are your sin. I take captive that thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ and live out of that identity. Listen, hear me this morning. You are not your sin. You are not the sin that someone else committed against you. You are everything God has declared you to be in Jesus Christ, despite how you feel. What else do we do? We preach the gospel to ourselves. What do you mean by that? Well, shame tells a lie that you're unworthy of love and undesirable. The truth of the gospel is the exact opposite. If you just know the gospel, you can battle shame. Uh, let me tell you what. Uh, shame says you, you're unworthy of love. You're, you're rejected. But in the gospel, what we learn is uh, he pursued you. You know my favorite part of Genesis chapter 3? 
is that when Adam and Eve fell, verse 6, they were ashamed. They went hiding, verses 7 and 8. Uh, we learned at the end of 8 and 9 that who goes looking for who? God, at the lowest point literally of their lives, pursues them in love. Shame said hide, and God said, hey, I'm on the move. I'm pursuing you in love. You don't have to hide from me. I'm running towards you. He pursued you. Scripture says he purchased you for a price. If we had time to get down into verse 21, we would realize that God sacrificed an animal, and through the skins of those animals, he clothed them. That animal sacrifice, that bloodshed to cleanse there, to cover their uh, shame, uh, is a picture of the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He purchased you for a price. Ephesians 1 says, he brought you into his family with great pleasure. Not a begrudging, like, you're not worthy, but I guess the lady said, no, I'm bringing you in with great pleasure. He gave you full rights and privileges. He didn't say, hey, I'll welcome you in, but, but you don't get all the same benefits. He says, no, come on in. You've got all the rights and privileges in Jesus Christ. He never condemns you, Romans 8, 1, and he'll never kick you out of the family, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 30. Shame says, hey, you don't deserve God's love after what you've done and who you've become, but the gospel says, hey, here's the good news of the gospel. You didn't deserve it in the first place. That's why it's called grace. And where sin has abounded, the Bible says, grace abounds much more. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves. Shame says, I'm unworthy. And the gospel says, you are, through Jesus Christ, been declared worthy despite how you feel. Here's the last thing. We live by faith, not feelings. What's important when it comes to receiving God's forgiveness is not whether or not you feel forgiven. What's important is whether or not, in fact, you have been declared forgiven. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear that verse? If shame has made you feel dirty, then what he says, hey, the blood of Jesus Christ offers cleansing power. You say, but I've got some big sins, some sins that nobody in this room even knows about. Did you hear this verse? He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even the sins that you think are so big. Listen, here's the good news of the gospel. The well of God's grace has no bottom, praise God. And so by faith, despite how shame makes you feel, live forgiven over sins you repented of because you are forgiven despite how you feel. But not only in Jesus, not only are you forgiven, you're wanted. Now, can we be honest? At times we say, I forgive someone, but we don't really want a relationship with him. Listen, in Jesus Christ, not only are we forgiven, transactional, we are wanted. And that is vital because shame makes us feel unworthy to be loved. I, I can't improve upon the preaching in this video clip that I rewatched this week, so I'm just gonna show it to you real quick. It didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, s started to rub against or collide with the church. This turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. 
occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus. And so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area and, and so I asked her to come, he was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band, he's playing, um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed, she thought it would be a concert, I knew better, it was shady, it was excellent. And, um, and then the, the minister got up and he said, today I wanna to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. And then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart, I don't, I'm still wrestling, um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was... Um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And you know, some kid came up, the rose is just completely jacked up, it's broken, the things are off, the petals are broken, and, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. Shame has made you feel like a broken rose that no one would want. Good news of the gospel is this. Jesus wants the rose.